postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane. Welcome to Birthful. I'm Adriana Lozada. 
So you know how there's been a real movement in breastfeeding support to trust that if we're offering the breast frequently and flexibly, the baby, as long as there's no underlying problems, will take the amount of milk that he or she needs. Well, similarly, with a baby's sleep needs, we can actually trust our baby's biological sleep regulators. That is Dr. Pamela Douglas, founder and medical director of the Possums Clinic. Dr. Pam's work focuses on helping parents learn a new evidence-based paradigm on how to care for their babies in a way that is neuroprotective and developmentally appropriate, while also being mindful of their own mental health. Today, we're going to be talking about how this new paradigm relates to baby sleep. Now, when I think about my daughter's first year and how frustrating, all-consuming, exhausting, and really even traumatizing our relationship to sleep was, I have a bit of a hard time wrapping my brain around an approach that says that babies will take the sleep they need whenever and wherever they need it. At the same time, that does feel incredibly liberating and more in line with the intuition that having to sleep train doesn't seem right. Oh, and Dr. Pam also goes into why burping is not a thing. Mind-blowing, right? Here we go. You're listening to Birthful, here to inform your intuition. Welcome, Pam. I am so very excited to have you here on the show. Thanks, Adriana. I'm delighted to be with you. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you identify? I'm a GP researcher, so a general practitioner and um, researcher, founder of the charity known as Possums & Co., also founder of the programs for parents with babies that are known in the research as neuroprotective developmental care, but, but families just know our programs as the Possums programs. I'm an adjunct associate professor at Griffith University here in Australia and also affiliated with the primary care clinical unit at the University of Queensland. And I have two children and four stepchildren and a wonderful, adorably precious bunch of grandchildren. Tell me, Pam, what does neuroprotective developmental care mean? Well, it's it's a suite of programs, evidence-based programs that detailed in something like 30 research publications now that deal with the challenges that can emerge across feeding of our babies, across sleep, those cry-fuss challenges that can be just so difficult for families and also integrated deeply into our programs are strategies for supporting parent mental health and emotional well-being. So that's the territory that's covered by our neuroprotective developmental care programs. Does that make sense? And, and fits perfectly to our conversation today, which is trying to figure out how to navigate life and baby sleep, which tends to be, I find, after the birth, the biggest hurdle for people, even sometimes harder than breastfeeding, even though those can be connected. So in that conversation of navigating life and baby sleep, what are some realistic expectations that people need to understand when figuring out how babies sleep? There's, you know, a, a number of things that I'd like to communicate there about infant sleep, but I wonder, Adriana, whether the first place 
for me to to sort of start is is just acknowledging up front that parents will get huge amounts of conflicting advice about their baby's sleep and and actually in our world today there's a very heavy focus on what you might call sleep training and really wherever parents turn they'll get advice that comes out of well really the 1950s 1960s was when sleep training originated you might call it technically a first wave behavioral approach to baby sleep and that advice says things like sleep breeds sleep first tired signs get the baby down don't let them be awake for more than a particular window of time before you put them down you've got to teach the baby to self settle so you know put the baby into the cot drowsy but awake don't let the baby get overtired overstimulated try to get 12 hours overnight don't let the baby develop bad habits don't let the little one go to sleep with the breast or the bottle don't even let the little one go to sleep perhaps in arms because that's viewed as, as a bad habit. So I think any conversation about a different way of making sense of baby sleep just has to start with an acknowledgement that this sleep training approach is so dominant out there and parents will get lots of advice that the sleep training approach is best for their baby's developmental outcomes and best for the family. But if we actually look at the research and I think there's been five systematic reviews now that draw together all the existing research um, and analyse it. And one I published with a co-author, but there's another four. We actually find when we bring together all this research that the sleep training approach isn't decreasing the frequency of night waking. And there's also growing evidence to show that the sleep training approaches ramp up anxiety and distress within a family. And so... Seeing this happening in the research years ago now, I, with, with some various colleagues, went right back to the research literature and uh, put together a, a completely different way of making sense of baby sleep. So, you know, what are some realistic expectations for parents around baby sleep? Well, one of the most important things to communicate is that baby sleep needs are incredibly biologically variable. So we can have, say, a newborn who might hardly need nine hours total in a 24-hour period of sleep, and that, that newborn might only be taking, say, half an hour total during the day, 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there. And admittedly, that newborn would be at the very low end of the curve of biologically normal sleep needs. But that baby's absolutely normal with, with normal developmental outcomes. And then we can have a newborn at the other end of the bell curve of baby sleep needs who might actually need 18 hours total in a 24-hour period. So we just want to support families in understanding the healthy function of the baby's biological sleep regulators. Let me ask you a question in terms of that broad scale of how many hours are possible. You, you mentioned between 9 and 18. Yeah, depending on the age of the bubby, yeah. So that was going to be my first question. Like, are we talking 9 and 18 range at one week? And how does that shift for a six-month-old? Or what is that kind of range? Yeah. So sleep needs do shrink 
throughout the first year um, of a baby's life. So a six-month-old is likely to have a range that could still be, you know, the eight and a half, nine hours total if the baby's at the low end of the sleep need curve. But, it, you know, it might be more like, say, 16 hours or something for a very high sleep need baby. Trying to capture it in figures because it's such a broad range really doesn't help parents at all, actually. Let's flip it. If we're not going to look at specific amount of hours, just to know that there could be a really wide range of how many hours they need. That's it. How then can somebody recognize that their baby is, is getting the right amount of sleep for what their baby's needs are? Yep. So you know, Adriana, how there's been a real movement in breastfeeding support to to trust that if we're offering the breast frequently and flexibly, the baby, as long as there's no underlying problems, will take the amount of milk that he or she needs. Well, similarly, with a baby's sleep needs, we can actually trust our baby's biological sleep regulators. If we're having days that that meet the baby's milk needs, however we're doing that, and have days that are full of rich and changing sensory nourishment, then actually babies will take the sleep that they need and and we can be incredibly relaxed about that. There is a situation that emerges quite commonly of what we would call excessive night waking. And that's different to developmentally normal night waking. So developmentally normal night waking right throughout the first year of life and really into toddlerhood, and I hate to say it, but but it's really clear from, from big cohort studies looking at um, normal night waking frequency, our little ones can wake every couple of hours right into toddlerhood actually but we just want to support everyone getting back to sleep really quickly. So no burping, no holding upright, no changing the nappy once you get out of those those very early weeks. And okay, we- wait, wait. Let's. Yeah, yeah. Let, I want to take it back. <laughs> I want to get so many questions. You mentioned that developmentally normal night waking is every couple of hours into toddlerhood with everybody falling back to sleep quickly. quickly. That's it. What is excessive night waking? Yes, that's an important question. So this is these are the families who are moving into patterns of the little one waking maybe every hour, sometimes every half an hour, every 45 minutes for, you know, whole parts of the night and this is happening regularly throughout the week. So any family will will have the odd really bad night and we just move through it as mindfully as we can and then that bad night's behind us but when we start to see patterns of of waking really regularly like this every hour or more then we've moved into excessive night waking and we can help that because this is simply a disruption to the circadian clock disrupted sleep patterns like this come out of disruption to the settings on the circadian clock And if we understand how to work with these two biological sleep regulators, the circadian clock and then the sleep pressure, the sleep pressure is regulated by the sleep-wake homeostat, if we understand how to work with these two sleep regulators, then over a period of a couple of weeks, we can actually 
deal with the excessive night waking and move that family back into much more manageable, developmentally normal night waking, which may be up to every couple of hours. Well, and some people would say that waking up every couple of hours into toddlerhood, even though developmentally normal, sounds like not a great time. But what I'm hearing from you is that it's not so much the waking, is the being able to fall asleep quickly and that the waking is more waking to feed uh, do I have that right? That's right. Although, you know, some families might night wean in that first year of life and there's no guarantee that the baby will wake any less often. I guess there's a couple of things there to unpack. So firstly, babies aren't waking excessively because they're breastfeeding and even our developmentally normal night waking may not necessarily be because of hunger but because of a desire, it's it's like this this biologically hardwired need to come up close to the parent body, close for a breastfeed or a bottle feed or a cuddle. The developmentally normal night waking, it's a time of life that's demanding, but but in fact it shouldn't leave parents with unmanageable, severe sleep deprivation. With Mother's Day coming up fast, are you looking to get your mom, grandma, or mother figure a gift that they'll actually love? You know, something that is treasured instead of dying out or collecting dust? If so, you need to know about mylifeinabook.com, which is a service that helps turn their life stories into a beautiful book that can be passed down. How amazing is that? And the process couldn't be easier. Basically, if they can use email, they can create their book. Every week, My Life in a Book will send them an email with a prompt question to get them started. And if they don't like the question, they can easily edit it or change it. We gave a My Life in a Book to a family member that always wants to document all family get-togethers through images. And let me tell you, the process of sending the gift was super simple, even letting us choose the date we wanted the gift to be sent. I'm so looking forward to discovering stories about her youth, her adventures, and the challenges she has overcome. And since My Life in a Book lets you add an image with each answer, she can now share the story that goes along with her many photos. Another great thing is that the answers can be edited at any time before the book is printed in case she wants to add anything else. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 10% off today. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids, and then when you want to share them, it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to, and then also remembering that, say, Aunt Helen only does email, so you need to send her image separately. Or like in my case, where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. 
Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. And I think for not being left with the sleep deprivation, the key there is the part where you say everybody gets back to sleep yeah. quickly. So let's get more into like how yeah, yeah. do you get everybody back to sleep quickly? So. There's a number of things to address here. So firstly, a lot of our families are being advised that they need to be burping their babies after feeds or holding the baby upright for a period of time after feeds. And in fact, we don't need to. Even our little ones who have feeding challenges, we want to sort out the feeding challenges, but they're not swallowing air the way folks are hearing at the moment. I know this from the research. And burping is really a culturally specific practice, you know. Most human cultures don't burp their babies and it's actually quite disruptive at the end of a feed because the little one has dialed right down with all the sort of activation of the parasympathetic nervous system and the cholecystokine and of, of a feed. They tend to dial right down and drowse into sleep. If we feel we've got to be burping or holding upright, that's really rousing for our babies, as is feeling that we've got to swaddle that little one. But actually the research doesn't bear that out. And for many families trying to get that little one zipped back up into the, the swaddle suit or, or, or literally wrapped up rouses the baby and makes that return to sleep more difficult for everyone. Changing of the nappy, well, with our newborn skin and, of course, with any poo, we do need to change a nappy, but as the little one moves out of the newborn phase, I certainly encourage um, families to use their barrier cream, but only change the nappy when you absolutely have to in the night because, again, that can rouse everybody. And then the other thing to consider is where our little one's sleeping. So the Possum's Sleep Program, of course, supports all the precepts of safe infant sleep. So the little one does need to be on their back, not on their side and certainly not on their tummy. The little one needs to be in a safe sleep space. And, and when we look at the research, we know that we, we just know that most families at some time, some nights at least, will have the little one sharing the bed. So we're very concerned to just have families know how to share the bed safely. And there are um, plenty of families who find that the bed sharing supports less disruption in the night. Certainly we want that little one in the same room as the parents, both 
day and night, actually. That's safe sleeping. And many other families will use, say, a side crib or we call them sidecar arrangements. I suppose the other thing to talk about there is our busy minds in the night. And and so what we need to do is have some strategies up our sleeve for managing the, the worried mind that's so much, very often so much a part of having a baby, isn't it? So having some simple strategies for managing that and for quietening our mind in the night is really empowering for families too. Now, for people who swaddle, for people who burp and go, my baby, you know, has a lot of spit up and burping seems to get that air out and I don't know what I would do if we don't swaddle. How do you encourage them to explore these alternatives and see what it's about. Yeah, that's it. So I'm always saying, you know, I might argue that what I'm offering you is with all the latest evidence. That doesn't help parents. All parents can do is experiment their way through and that that's your great source of resilience, your great source of strength, actually, because you're the expert on your baby. Take an idea and see what happens in your context. Give things a little bit of time because babies get used to things and then we're just teaching them something new. It can be helpful too to just let parents know that even though you get lots of advice that the baby swallowed air and that that's going to come up and unsettle the baby or come up cause the bubby to spill, to do a puke, it's kind of actually it's a kind of misconception around the physiology of it all. This has been one of my research focuses. Puking is so normal for our babies right throughout. It peaks at about four or five months of age, actually. But it's not acidic the way people tell you. Actually, reflux coming up, you know, close to two hours after feeds, it's close to pH neutral and it's not causing acid and pain the way people think. It's true that the gut is like a second brain. So the gut is highly innovated. And when our little ones rouse in the night, you could say they're starting to rouse up out of sleep, starting to get a bit of a grizzle. We call that the sympathetic nervous system dialing up. Well, the gut gets active at the same time. The, the sympathetic nervous system also dials up the gut. And then you will hear the baby pass some flatulence or the baby might do a little puke or, or burp. And naturally parents think, oh, was it gut pain that caused my baby to wake? But I invite parents to do this flip with making sense of it differently, that what's happened is your little one's starting to dial up, starting to communicate to you coming up out of sleep, and then the gut gets active. But the gut event is not causing the baby to rouse. The baby's rousing and then dialing up. And, and if this is happening excessively through the night, often at the six to eight week mark, parents will say that little one's just groaning and grunting and in and out of sleep for half the night and they're not getting any sleep. They think, is it gut pain? Is it allergy? Is it reflux? Usually what's happening there is that the circadian clock needs support to hasten into a, a more mature setting. The little one's rousing because 
of his or her metabolism. The little one's more or less ready to party and see the world and see the day, but the circadian clock is not yet properly aligned with with the parent's circadian clock. And we talked a lot about the night. I do want to talk about the day, but I also want to bring in this concept that you've been mentioning a couple of times about the circadian rhythm and how to support those circadian needs. Well, what I might do is start with the sleep regulators, the circadian clock, and then talk about the days. So there's the two sleep regulators, actually, both for adults and and for babies. There's sleep is set by the circadian clock and by the sleep-wake homeostat. And so the circadian clock is set by the sun and we need to keep the cues of daytime noise activity quite separate to the cues of night, quiet, dark, less activity, even though in the night we're still eye contacting and meeting our little one's needs. During the day we wouldn't sleep babies in quiet, dark rooms, not only because being in a separate room is not as safe, but also because the quiet, dark room confuses the circadian clock and makes the circadian clock think the bubby's moved into a little nighttime situation. So sleep during the day is in the middle of, you know, noise, activity, other siblings running around, the baby's following along, and sleep will look after itself. So we want to keep those circadian cues quite separate. Evenings I think of as day so it's still light noise activity family life until the little one's sleep pressure is so high that he or she is ready for the big sleep at night so that's the second sleep regulator is the sleep wake homeostat and this is a system of neurohormones that drops right off when we sleep And so for me, when I wake in the morning, given that I don't have little ones waking me in the night, these hormones are really low, they're rising all day and they peak at, say, 10 o'clock at night. And that's when my sleep pressure is really high. That's when I feel sleepy and I'll put my head down. Now, with our little ones, their sleep pressure is rising much more quickly. But the function of a daytime nap is just to take the edge off that rising sleep pressure during the day. And, you know, depending on the baby's sleep needs, for some little ones it's just a few moments and there's this sudden drop in the sleep pressure and then on with the day again. You know, you'll all um, be familiar with how often our little ones may drop off the end of a feed. We put the little one down and then they wake up. And, And apart from the natural disappointment that you haven't had a moment's break, that is so normal, so normal. And you might do a little transitional breastfeeding on with the day. But we've been very much conditioned that that is very frustrating and not acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, you just got to sleep. You've been asleep for 15 minutes, maybe 10. I put you down in the crib and you wake up and now we're done with this nap. Like that's not what I had planned in my life. How can I go and navigate my life when I don't have expectations of what my day will look like? Pam, help me out. I I am a frustrated mom. I know, I know. And this is huge. It's absolutely huge because very often we do have, you know, the woman is the primary carer and 
she doesn't have huge amounts of support around her, often very little. And the idea of a baby's sleep being a time where she can, well, for goodness sake, just have a cup of tea or even get something done or, or maybe even lie down is huge. Unfortunately, it can really backfire if we're hooking our need for rest and restoration into the baby's sleeps during the day. It is sometimes possible to grow bigger blocks of sleep during the day, you know, and sleep training strategies focus on this. But what happens two weeks down the track, three weeks down the track, is that we start to slip into patterns of excessive night waking because this growing of big sleep blocks during the day actually disrupts the circadian clock and worsens nighttime sleep. So I want to bring in a couple of scenarios so we can visualize what that looks like. Yeah. So because you're talking about having a rich life outside the home and going on about your life and just doing, you know, whatever it is. And that baby will basically catnap whenever they feel like it throughout. But we know that for some of us that have winters, that out and about daily life is not necessarily something that is available. And also, we are still in a pandemic, which means that we've been locked into our houses. So what about that yes. that parent that's spending basically almost all their day at home with no social activities and a baby and trying to find some solace? Yes, yes. And look, the, this the pandemic context and families in lockdown with babies has just been it's just terrible. It's it's really really tough. So the very first thing to say there is enormous self compassion because babies will dial up inside the house just because our homes are low sensory. So it, it it's likely to be a rougher, you know, journey. The little one's likely to be more unsettled in a lockdown situation than would otherwise be the case and enormous self-compassion, self-kindness is required there. But I've actually written an article, again, freely available in our blogs on possumsonline.com about meeting babies' sensory needs as best we can in the pandemic context, particularly in lockdowns. And I hear what you're saying um, about climates that, that make being outside the house very unattractive. But to the extent that we can rug the baby up, if necessary, if we're in in a cold climate, and still get out into the street or a backyard to the extent that we've got windows of opportunity where we're allowed to be walking or exercising, depending on the particular regulations of lockdown, you might be able to walk with a friend, socially distance. But anything outside the house will increase the sensory nourishment the baby's receiving and help keep the little ones more settled, dial them down. And quick question... What about babies, and I'm talking, you know, those first few months, even four or five months, that will only sleep when held? Well, and this you're thinking daytimes here in particular, right? But also at night? In particular, but sometimes at night as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is interesting, isn't it? Because it's true that these little ones, you put them down, they wake. But I would say, well, if that little one really needed to sleep, 
you'd put him or her down and they'd stay asleep. But the sleep pressure's not that high. So when you pop them down, they wake. That's okay. They'll cry, not because they need to go back to sleep, but little ones do cry when they wake because they're thinking, you know, where's my mummy? Where's where's that loving person's body? So they, they'll cry when they wake, but often families are told, oh, if they cry when they wake, it's because they need to go back to sleep during the day. We'd say, oh, just get them up, little transitional breastfeed, but on with the day, sensory nourishment, sensory nourishment. And we can trust that if they really needed more sleep, they would have taken it. And that will protect the nights because if we're doing a lot of contact sleeping and really trying to keep the baby asleep during the day, the risk is in two or three weeks we start to get excessive waking at night. So really it's thinking differently about baby sleep during the day. We're not trying to get the baby to sleep. We're not trying to keep the baby asleep. We want those days before we have to return to work when we are home with the baby a lot to be as enjoyable and as socially engaged as possible, lots of walking if you can. The concept is that we create life that's rich and full and meaningful for that primary carer, that woman, and the baby fits in, but it's happening outside the house where there's lovely, rich sensory nourishment, which is so good for a baby's developing brain. It really does optimise developmental outcomes. And I love that concept and the idea of really trust and go about and do things. What about the person that is out and about with their child and then they have a very unsettled, fussy baby and the baby's just unhappy, even crying. And then, you know, that makes the whole outing <laughs> a not a fun one. Yeah. And look, you know, there are days, that there'll be sort of days that are harder than others with a bubby. But if we've got a truly unsettled baby, a baby... You know, where parents, a woman is, her heart sinks at the thought of going out because the baby is likely to be crying and screaming. And if this is her pattern, her experience, then we've got what I would call a clinical problem. And that's where my work, you know, our neuroprotective developmental work around the crying baby becomes so important. But I would say something must be happening probably around feeds because when we're out, we've got two tools. So we've, we've activated lovely rich sensory nourishment because we're out of the house, you know, looking around, seeing the world. How is the tool of milk working for that, for that woman, for that mother and baby? What's happening with the breastfeeding? Is the breast working as a tool, really, just to dial the baby down as soon as they start to dial up? And very often, of course, it's not. Or, or you know, even how's the woman using the bottle, either with the formula or the express breast milk? How's that working? We'd be wanting to use the bottle in a way, and again, looking at, at, at this developmentally appropriately, but certainly in those first months of life, we want to use the bottle in a way just as we'd use the breast that dials the baby down. So when we've got a little one who's habitually sort of screaming and really fussy when, when the mum is out, I'd say, yep, this is a problem. It is really distressing. It becomes a reason to not want to get out of the house, but then things can get worse and worse because the baby's sensory needs aren't being met. But I'd say if that's happening, I would hope for that woman that, that she could get some really good health professional input to sort out why the milk isn't working. Pam, thank you so very much for this conversation today. It has been kind of mind-blowing. My pleasure. 
That was Dr. Pamela Douglas, who is the founder and medical director of the Possums Clinic and author of the newly updated book, The Discontented Little Baby Book, All You Need to Know About Feeds, Sleep, and Crying. You can find Dr. Pam on Instagram at Possums Online. Now, I hope your main takeaway from our conversation is that you don't have to plan your day around your baby's sleep and that it is okay if they don't take big naps during daytime. Maybe try trusting that when they're tired and the sleep pressure is high enough, they will take the sleep they need. Approach it with curiosity and keep in mind your needs as well as your baby's to find that balance that works best for all of you. And if you try it, I'd love to hear how that works for you. So send me an email to podcast at birthful.com. One thing you can do for you is support your own sleep beyond whatever amount of hours you manage to get every night. For example, have your levels of certain vitamins and minerals checked at your next appointment with your care provider. Iron, magnesium, and vitamin D, they all have been noted to have impacts on your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. So if you're feeling restless, maybe it's time to investigate a little. Then the one thing you can do for the rest of us is learn more about the history of sleep training and how it's a practice that was created and perpetuated with very little understanding of babies' physiological needs. The field of infant neurodevelopment has exploded over recent years, and so it's time that we collectively updated our views around sleep training, similarly to what we're doing with perinatal practices like episiotomies or optimal cord clamping. To help with this, we've linked a few articles on the show notes for this episode at birthful.com. You can connect with Birthful on Instagram at Birthful Podcast. And to learn more about Birthful and my birth and postpartum preparation classes, go to birthful.com. Birthful is created and produced by me, Adriana Lozada, with production assistant from Asia Plati. Thank you for listening to and sharing Birthful. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Amazon Music, Spotify, and everywhere you listen. And come back for more ways to inform your intuition.